Lord, meet us, we pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit. Give us yourself, Lord Jesus, and sit with us. Teach us as we come to be together in your word. Amen. The impossible question in life is the question, how can God be good, all good, and knowing and powerful? How can all those be put together? The most poignant moment that I ever had facing that question, other than my own personal struggles, but as a pastor, the kind of moment where the question gets on the table and everybody turns and looks at me, the most poignant one of those I ever had was in Calcutta. I had been traveling across the north of the great country of India. Now, in the south of India is is one of the most amazing varying groups of Christians in the world. The Anglican church there is an amazing group. You get north in the country and there are much fewer fellow followers of Jesus. And we're trekking across the north of the country. We started out in Rishikesh. Rishikesh is where the Beatles went. It's the, it's the hippie, happy, shallow spirituality place. It's, it's kind of like Myrtle Beach given over to spirituality stuff. Then we were in Varanasi. Varanasi is a medieval city. Varanasi is a place where there's a lot of architectural beauty, but it's also the place where on the Ganges, there was the practice of, of putting the corpses on to pyres and sending them out into the river. We were in Varanasi at the time. Ian was an infant. The girls were very small. We were walking that night, getting over to where we were staying. And I came upon a scene that, that just, just hit me to the core a young family with children, three children, roughly the ages of my children, lying out on mats on the dock, no, no blankets, just mats down, no cushion, and that was where they slept every night. We worked our way over to Calcutta. We were visiting there with some bright, intelligent, committed, faithful young people who were over there working with the ministry that is all about getting people into the hard spaces and walking in the ways of the incarnate Jesus. And these bright young folks were there trying to find out more about the trafficking for sex situation and trade in that place. So we sat with them, my, my pastor friend and I, we sat with them one evening and they talked and they debriefed and that was the moment. And they looked at me and they said, how does this happen? How do we come to this? Where is God in the midst of this? It was the more poignantly ironic that this would happen in Calcutta, the city of Teresa of Albania. Teresa of Albania, I mean, this diminutive little woman from perhaps the poorest country in all of Europe, who felt a call to go to India originally to teach. Think about that for a minute. I'm the, I'm the proud son of two teachers. I believe in teaching. Teaching is an act of hope, isn't it? Teaching is a belief that if I pour into the life of these others, something will change and there will be good. Teaching implicitly says there is a worth and a hope to engaging with people. And there's a way forward. And this woman, Teresa, was originally called to go into India to teach that act of hope. 
But one day, as she's going along the street in Calcutta, just like any other day, and as she passes by a Dalit who's dying on the sidewalk, and in a place where the predominant worldview, the predominant theology says, leave that one alone, they're experiencing what they deserve, and the sooner they pass, the better for them and everyone, where the worldview teaches that. She's walking along, she sees that, and that day, for reasons known only to God, the insistent voice of God begins to speak to her. And so she gives up teaching that implicit act of hope, explicit act of hope. And she does what is about the most mundane, about the blandest, about the most thankless, I guess we have to say, it's the adjective du jour, about the most unsexy, sorry, thing you can possibly imagine doing. She starts to take the dying from the sidewalks and take them in and simply wash them and care for them as they die. What a waste of time. Act of hope. Does it make sense? She wasn't setting out to do anything big or famous or controversial. But it ended up in the end, she did all of that. We'll come back to her in a little bit. This morning is our third in our little mini-series of intangible, the, the culture we aspire to have. And this morning, we're talking about tenaciously full of hope, being people who are tenaciously hope filled. In Western culture writ large, if you talk to folks in the intellectual circles, hope died a long time ago. We don't give much attention to the Great War here, but in Europe, the Great War was the last gasping breath of anything like hope in the trenches of World War I. But if you read more broadly, you'll find it's probably the wars of religion back in the 16th and 17th centuries that did hope in philosophically. So that we live in a day now where any kind of real and living hope is dismissed. How can you truly be hopeful without being either hopelessly naive or dismissively dualistic? Pie in the sky by and by. Someday God will sort it out when we get up to disembodied bliss? How do we live honestly as a people of true and living and not naive hope? Jesus will give us the answer or actually one of his his best followers will give us the answer in one of those poignant little moments this morning. This morning we come to John and the end of chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, get this. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let them know so that they might, it says in the English, arrest, the verb is seize. And the verb is more active than that. So they can get him. We're tired of this guy. We're annoyed with this guy. We want to get our hands on him. We want to seize him. Do you notice the link between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. I I know you know this. The chapters and verses were added a long time later. Find yourself a Bible that doesn't have them. 
because the way we read the Bible is in chunks. And so we start at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. And we miss that what is going on here. We miss the story of it. And what's going on here is that Jesus is an outlaw. This is the outlaw, Jesus Christ. And so then you get to the absolutely amazing next line, that therefore he goes to Bethany. Well, of course. He goes to the home of Lazarus, whom he has raised from the dead, and Martha and Mary. Everybody needs friends, folks. Even Jesus. And Jesus, the outlaw, had friends. And he goes to their home. And I love the next bit. So they gave a dinner for him there. I mean, what do you do with an outlaw? You throw a dinner party. So they throw a dinner party. Martha served. Well, of course she did. Martha, Martha, you, you are weary and worried about many things. I mean, apparently Martha didn't get it last time. Or maybe she did and she's doing it right now. It's just the way she's wired. I don't know. Martha served. Of course she did. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Don't play that top me dinner game with Lazarus. Lazarus, I've been to Jerusalem. Okay. Lazarus, I've been to Rome. I've been dead. But, you know, went in the tomb, came out. Oh, don't play top me with Lazarus. Mary, Mary, Mary got it. When Jesus said, Mary picked the better part, she got it. Mary's been listening to Jesus. So Mary took a pound, a lot of expensive ointment made from pure nard. She didn't cut corners. She anointed the feet of Jesus, a holy act. She wiped his feet with her hair. This is not untoward, but it is intimate. It's so very profoundly, deeply intimate, so extravagant. I love the next line. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just breathe in. Just have an imaginative, figurative moment. Just imagine it for a minute. Put yourself in the house. And it's filled with the fragrance. Isn't it so beautiful? But it's never that simple, is it? There's always a cynic in the room, a person who the spirit of the cynic is working on. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You get it? Judas actually wants to take it away. Jesus, take it away from her and let's go sell it. She didn't use it all up that day. Jesus says, leave her alone so she can keep the rest for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. How many of you have ever heard that last sentence from Jesus, the poor you always have with you? How many have ever heard that used as a reason not to really have to care about the poor? You're always going to have them. Jesus said so. Don't ask big questions about why there are poor people. Jesus said there will always be poor people. Right? Jesus, friends, is in his brilliance. He's doing three things here, and one of them is not being a closet Hindu. One of them is not saying, oh, well, that's just the way it is. 
That's what God ordained for them. So there. Jesus is doing three things. As ever, the first thing he's doing is he's going deeper. He's calling out the lie. It is implicitly, but he's doing it. He knows what's in Judas Iscariot's heart. He has the spirit of God without limit, without measure. He can see what is in a man's heart. We're told that in John's gospel. He knows what Judas is doing. He knows what Judas is planning to do. And I don't mean because he had some kind of supernatural download of every second of the future. I mean, he can just tell because he has the spirit of God without limit. It's in a sort of spirit and him. It's just his healthiness, his ability. He knows what's in the heart of a man. He knows what Judas is up to. But Jesus then stands up to Judas. He said, no, leave her alone. I love that moment. I love it. Jesus said, leave her alone. What she's doing is beautiful and good and right in its extravagance. Leave her alone. The second thing Jesus is doing, he is not giving us a bumper bumper sticker sized version of his economic ideas. He's calling out human sin. We heard in our lesson from Deuteronomy 15, as the people went into the promised land, if they structured their life in the way that God told them, then there would be no poor among them. But the verse continues and it admits the human frailty and the sickness of sin that we all have. And it says, but there will always be the poor among you. Jesus is looking back to that moment. And he's saying, this is the way humans are. This is the situation on earth. But it's really a statement of judgment from him. It's not a statement of permission. It's not a statement of don't worry about it then. It's a statement of face up to the reality of the human condition. The third thing Jesus is doing, and this is the good one, the third thing Jesus is doing is he's giving us the way to hope. Paradoxically, the way to a real and living and abiding hope in the midst of the horribleness of this world is to adore Jesus on his way to the cross. Six days before the Passover, It's close to the moment. His hour is nigh. To adore Jesus on the cross, to adore the resurrected, vindicated, glorified, reigning Jesus. This is the path. This is the way to a true and tangible and worthwhile hope. And so Jesus says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She's been listening. She knows. She's heard what, he's gonna, what he has said about what's going to happen to him. And hope lives there. In Acts 2, the very beginning, the early part of the book of Acts, where the followers of Jesus are filled now with the Holy Spirit and they've, and they've realized that, oh, that's where we are then. The Spirit's in us. We have the Spirit of God, but it's us with the Spirit. They are filled with such a hope because they've been infused with the vision of Jesus, the resurrected, glorified, reigning Jesus, that they then begin to live, we're told, in such a way where there would be no poor among them. The effect of the hope of the vision of the resurrected Jesus makes them into a little seed of a new world. N.T. Wright, 
in the Gifford Lectures in the UK a few years ago. The Gifford Lectures have for ages been the annual lecture given over to something called natural theology that used to be a beautiful, living, real thing, used to exist. And that was the idea that you could look at the way we're made and you can look at the way the world is made and we can deduce from it certain aspects of of who God is. It's a very Romans 1 kind of a thing. N.T. Wright, giving the Gifford Lectures, he listed seven ways that natural theology has been massively deconstructed in the same ways that hope has been deconstructed. And then he said, if we begin at the place of observation and deduction, then yes, natural theology dissolves under all these critiques. But he said, if we begin at the cross, if we begin at the cross and read these things back through that lens, then it works and it holds together best single lecture I've ever heard for these issues and this pain was Wright giving a summary of the Gifford lectures that I was able to hear in person. So I'm in Calcutta. These faithful, committed, dear, wonderful, bright young people looking at me saying, well, how about it then? So the question for me, guys, is how long? That's the question of revelation. That's the question at the end of the scriptures. How long, O Lord? For some reason, God has gone this enigmatic way of sending himself, of walking as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering and taking on the pain of the world and the suffering of the world and the injustice of the world onto himself at his own cost. And for some reason, he has gone that strange route that took a long time to build up to the right moment for him to enter. And then he sent his spirit. And it's a beautiful story because the church has grown around the world and continues to grow today. And yet also the suffering grows. And we watch it and we say, how long, O Lord, how long? And somehow God holds on. There are people yet to be born that he wants to have know him, that he wants to love, that he wants to bring into his family. And in a Romans 8 kind of a way, he's waiting for the revelation of the children of God. He's waiting for us to take him on, to believe him, to give ourselves wholly and utterly over to him and his work and his kingdom and to join him in caring about the suffering of the world and to do that with a living hope. And God somehow, he's just able to keep waiting and keep working and keep hoping. He knows, he knows he's got it in hand. It's bigger than us. Cornell West is a brilliant black Christian scholar in our nation. He's a faithful Christian presence in places that people think it's impossible to be that. He's an amazing guy. Cornel West says, I'm never surprised by evil. I'm never paralyzed by despair. I'm a follower of Jesus. Just that simple for him. I'm never surprised by evil. I'm never paralyzed by despair. I'm a follower of Jesus. He talked about Being a black follower of Jesus in America, he says this, I've given all of me, and yet I'm planning to give even more. And he he says, what is that? 
He says, that is the fundamental core of black culture at its best called kenosis, where you empty yourself, you give yourself, you serve others. You give what you didn't even know you could give because once grace gets a hold of your soul and turns you around, once you really get washed in the blood of the cross, you recognize that you can do things you never, ever thought you could. That's tangible, tenacious hope. So what about a diminutive woman from Albania called to India? doing the blandest, the most mundane, the least sexy thing imaginable, and making waves just because she's caring for the dying. She's known now, of course, as Mother Teresa. She's known now as Teresa of Calcutta. What many folks don't know, and they'll tell you this quietly when you visit the home for the dying, what many folks don't know is that shortly after she started, when she was given the home, there were actually angry protests in the street out front. I mean, can you imagine doing something less subversive than simply taking dying bodies off the sidewalks and washing them and being with them as they die? If your theology and your worldview says, this one's going to die and the Atman, the little bit of soul in them is going to escape and go up and this will happen thousands and tens of thousands of times before there are enough incarnations for that soul bit to be released from the evil of matter. If your worldview says that to you and someone else comes along and says, this one is uniquely created in the image of God. This is the only of this life being that will ever be. And God loves this one. And there's a God who is personal and who cares and who says that these days are this one's life here. So you take that one in, into a place that's bland and simple, clean and orderly, and you wash them and you care for them. You are, in fact, being wildly subversive. And you are living a hope an amazing, poignant hope in the midst of a worldview that has worked to displace pain so far away and to spread it out thin. And you're saying, no, this moment, this day, this one matters. And you're doing something radically subversive. And she was. How do the Sisters of Charity begin each and every day? They begin each and every day with the adoration of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And they go from that place to care for even the dying. Invite you, friends, to, to pray. I just invite you to imagine yourself. You know the ways poignant and personal to you or when you read the news or whatever it is, you look at those you love, you know the ways that you need hope and you need to be able to believe that hope is tangible, to be tenacious, to hold on to hope. I invite you to imagine yourself kneeling before the cross of Jesus.
And imagine yourself like Thomas, being overcome by it all in the world. And the resurrected Jesus comes to you. And he does not scold you. But he shows you that his wounds are still there. And they're still open. And he invites you to place your hand. And you know that somehow in a mystery beyond understanding, God remains present in the story, giving himself in love. Just take a quick few seconds. Tell Jesus whatever you need to tell him. Come, Lord, renew us in hope. Fill us with yourself. Amen.